Welcome to the Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme for our December 2015 issue is the microbiome. So joining me today is Dr. Ann Ming-Ye, author of the paper, Bugs and Guts, Practical Applications of Probiotics for Gastrointestinal Disorders in Children, which is published in the December 2015 NCP issue. Dr. Ye is a clinical assistant professor with the Department of Pediatrics, Division of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. So thank you, Dr. Ye, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Before we start our discussion, I'd like to ask Dr. Ye if she has any disclosures on this topic that she'd like to share. I have no disclosures. Okay, thank you. So kind of as we get started and we kind of launch our discussion on probiotics, there are a lot of terms that we talk about in the paper, so I'd like you to define some of those terms for our listeners. Can you explain, first of all, the difference between microbiome and microbiota? Absolutely. So the microbiota is a term that describes the collective microorganisms that reside in a particular environment. So, for example, the gut microbiota would be all the microorganisms that reside in the human GI tract. The microbiome is a term that describes all the collective genomes of the microorganisms that reside in that particular environment. Other terms that are used in your paper and throughout NCP in this issue is Probiotics and prebiotics, can you define the difference between those for us as well? Sure. So a probiotic is any live microorganism when given an adequate amount actually promotes or confers a health benefit to the host, whereas a prebiotic is a non-digestible food that when ingested, the GI tract of the human does not actually absorb it or digest it, and then that becomes the food for uh, probiotic organisms. I know in your paper, Dr. Ye, you talk about how our body contains trillions of these bacterial cells. So what's the basic premise for how administering other bacteria in the form of probiotics can improve or help reduce disease? I need to back up for a second and maybe describe how the GI system and the immune system works in that the GI immune system actually maintains a delicate balance or a delicate dance between the immune system and all these organisms that live in the GI tract. So, for example, the GI system, the immune system, has to recognize the difference between potential pathogen or bug that may be causing a diarrheal illness and the normal commensal gut microbiome and the food antigens that we normally eat. So this delicate balance is continual through the day-to-day interactions of the immune system with everything in the intestinal tract. So probiotics, when they're administered, may interact with the commensal organisms in the GI tract, and then also they may actually alter 
the function and the interaction in the population of the GI tract. One example of this would be in a C. diff infection. One probiotic is called Saccharomyces boulardii, and this yeast, this Saccharomyces, actually secretes an enzyme that can digest the toxin produced by C. diff that causes disease, and that it can actually inhibit this toxin from binding to the receptor sites because the probiotic actually secretes an enzyme that degrades the C. diff toxin's receptor sites. And so when you have a C. diff infection, it's actually quite beneficial to take your antibiotic to treat the C. diff, but then also add to that regimen Saccharomyces boulardii. Other examples of how probiotics may change or, or interact with the GI system include for example, the gut lining is covered with a mucin coating, kind of like the coating of goo. And basically, the probiotics may change or increase the mucin that's actually lining the gut. And this may help the gut become less permeable. Certain probiotics may actually also change the tight junctions that line the epithelial cells. And that may also decrease gut permeability. And all of this by changing or decreasing gut permeability may, in fact, help with allergy reactions or immune reactions and helping in certain disease processes. One of the things you mentioned in the article is that when someone or a child starts taking probiotics, it can cause GI symptoms, some side effects like nausea, vomiting, bloating, maybe even diarrhea. So is there a way to reduce the side effects when someone starts taking probiotics, for example, maybe starting low and rising up on the dose? Or are those symptoms that will just diminish with time as your body kind of adapts to taking that probiotic? That's a great question. I actually, in my clinical experience, when I prescribe a probiotic, most of the patients actually tolerate it quite well. It's the rare case that a patient will tell me that the probiotic actually caused the symptoms of vomiting, bloating, or diarrhea. These are obviously side effects that are reported in the studies that we reviewed. But in my clinical experience, the patients actually tolerate the probiotics very well. And if a patient actually does have significant side effects, my advice would be to perhaps try a different strain of probiotic, a different bacterial or yeast strain, to see if they tolerate the other strain better. In your paper, Dr. Ye, you kind of talked about how probiotics could be beneficial in several different conditions, and one of those was colic. So if I were a parent and I started providing probiotics to my colicky baby, how long would it take to know whether that probiotic was going to help the symptoms of colic, and can that same rule of thumb be applied to other conditions where you use probiotics, such as diarrhea? Typically, a one-week trial of a probiotic for colic is a good time frame to use. In the studies with probiotics and colic, they compared babies' crying time in babies who took the probiotic and placebo, and they were able to detect a difference by one week into the trial. Um, and therefore, I think a one-week time frame would be a good trial period. For other conditions, one to two weeks would also be a good trial period as well. You know, it does take several days at least to have the probiotic make its effect in the GI system. 
You mentioned this earlier, that Saccharomyces is a yeast, and most probiotics are bacteria. So are there any specific patients in whom it would really be more of a concern to use Saccharomyces since it is a yeast? In general, I would say that the Saccharomyces, as well as other probiotics that are yeast forms, have been shown in immunocompromised hosts so immunocompromised patients, to potentially cause fungal infections or fungemia in their bloodstream. And so in general, probiotics should not be used in severely immunosuppressed patients, and particularly immunosuppressed patients who have central lines or indwelling catheters. When you review all the literature on the morbidity and mortality in terms of probiotic use, the most dangerous potential harm is that patients may have either the probiotic bacterial strain or the yeast in the blood, especially if the patient has an indwelling central line and that causes fungemia or bacteremia sepsis. So in general, severely immunosuppressed patients and patients with central lines should avoid probiotics. What recommendations can you give as to how you decide which probiotic to use and what's the dose, and is that dose different in children or infants based on their weight? This is a great question, and something that I really wanted to try to highlight in our paper is that just as you wouldn't go out and get any old antibiotic for an infection, for example, an ear infection, you would specifically want to use amoxicillin or augmentin. For probiotics, I try to use an evidence-based approach as well. So, a very indication-specific and strain-specific prescription. So in our review, we made a chart with which particular strains, bacterial strains, are indicated for particular indications, such as antibiotic-associated diarrhea or C. diff infection, colic, etc., and the dosing that has been studied. Unfortunately, with pediatrics, as in you know, most of our pediatric literature, a lot of the studies are from adult literature, and sometimes we do have to extrapolate the pediatric dosing. But where it was available, we did provide the pediatric dosing. Um, the good thing about probiotics, though, it is is that it is hard to overdose, mainly because, you know, most of the doses are, for example, 10 billion colony-forming units, but you have 300 trillion bacteria in your GI tract. And so you gave too much. I think there are very little side effects to that. And so in general, using a fraction of an adult dose for a child is safe. There's no real weight-based dosing um, in infants and children that I've seen. But again, overall, as long as your patient is not immunocompromised and things like that, it does seem to be a very safe supplement. And I just want to point out for our listeners that that is table one in your paper. And I do encourage all of you to look at that. That's a very helpful table. The other question I've always wondered is, is there a specific duration for which you should administer a probiotic? For example, if you're using it for rotavirus, versus antibiotic-associated diarrhea, how long should they be given a probiotic, and how does that compare if you're using a probiotic for a chronic condition such as Crohn's disease or recurrent colitis? Does it ever benefit the child from having a vacation from probiotics in those long-standing conditions? So 
again, it definitely depends on why you're using the probiotic. In antibiotic-associated diarrhea or an acute infection, the actual insult is acute and short-lived. And so the actual time frame that you would be using the probiotic is also, you know, a short time period. The thing to highlight is that for both any infectious diarrhea as well as antibiotic-associated diarrhea, the most important is to start the probiotic when you either start the antibiotic or at the first sign of illness. It does appear that the studies show that that's when the probiotic can be the most effective. And then in terms of when to stop it, in general for antibiotic-associated diarrhea, most of the studies continue the probiotic for approximately one to two weeks after the antibiotic is finished. Any infectious diarrhea, again, you know, one to two weeks after the symptoms resolve. In most cases, you can stop the probiotic at that point. For more chronic conditions where you have a more ongoing dysbiosis of the gut microbiota, for example, in ulcerative colitis or pouchitis, the probiotic should be continued as an ongoing or maintenance, almost like a maintenance medication. So in the case for ulcerative colitis, VSL number three is one of the probiotics that's been studied to help maintenance of remission. And so in these patients, we use the probiotic as one of their maintenance medications. And in general, I do not stop it. In fact, if a patient is flaring from their ulcerative colitis, sometimes as a first-line management, I may even double the dose while they're in a flare in addition to, you know, stepping up their immunosuppressive regimen. You mentioned also, I think, a very important point that each type of condition should be matched to a specific strain of probiotic like you have in your table. But also, what should practitioners or parents look for as far as the probiotic in the number of colonies, expiration date, storage of that probiotic, et cetera? In general, there are specific probiotics that are more FDA-approved as a drug. For example, VSL, like I mentioned, for ulcerative colitis does come in a prescription form. However, the large majority of probiotics are marketed as dietary supplements. And dietary supplements do not need FDA approval before getting marketed. And so I think it's very important as a practitioner and a provider to be aware of the probiotics that you may be recommending and the safety. In general, I really encourage providers to make sure that the probiotic that they're recommending is vetted by a third party. So, for example, there are companies out there such as consumerlabs.org that actually goes and checks if the probiotic on the shelf does not have any other bacterial contamination, actually does have live organisms like it's supposed to, and actually has the amount um, that's labeled on the bottle is actually in each capsule. And when you go to this consumerlabs.org website, another website similar to it, you will be very surprised to see that there are certain brands and certain um, probiotics that do not meet all these criteria. So um, I would encourage providers to do a little homework from that aspect. So what trends do you see 
for probiotic use in the United States. For example, are we going to see probiotics more in the form of supplements, capsules, or as a functional food? And I'm just kind of curious how that compares with how probiotics are used uh, around the world as well. I think in general, the use of probiotics over the last 10 to 20 years has really exploded. If you go to Whole Foods or any of these health food stores, there are shelves and shelves of probiotics, and it comes in many different forms, for sure. Um, In our paper, we briefly reviewed the different forms, as in capsules or pills, but, you know, certain yogurt drinks as well as infant formulas are now adding probiotics more and more to to claim that it may have health benefits. I think the overall evidence is still emerging. We are still at the tip of the iceberg in terms of, number one, understanding the gut microbiome, but then also understanding how probiotics may be efficacious for certain diseases. So I think as we get more information about the gut microbiome and its effect on disease and illness, we will have more information on how probiotics may be beneficial as well. Across the globe, Europe and Australia, I believe, are a little bit ahead of us in the game and have been using probiotics for a little longer. And there are certain probiotic brands that have been around in Europe for a long time and that are just emerging in the U.S. market. But I do see that overall there's a continual trend of increasing probiotic use. Do you have any predictions for any promising uses for probiotics in the future? I wish I could have a crystal ball, but I think as we get more information, we are going to discover that the gut microbiome has a large role to play, not just in GI illness, but possibly in other autoimmune diseases as well as environmental or food allergies, and possibly even in neurologic diseases such as um, Parkinson's. And so, you know, as we gain more information about how the bacteria and the microbes in our GI system actually play a role in this, there may be more of a role for probiotics in these diseases as well. However, I think we definitely need more information and more studies. Before we wrap up, do you have any additional comments that you'd like to share with our listeners today? I'd just like to sum up and say, you know, proceed with caution, especially for providers who are recommending probiotics. Make sure that your patients are not immunocompromised or have indwelling catheters. Try to use evidence-based choices in choosing a particular probiotic for particular indications as the evidence is still emerging. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Ye, today for sharing your expertise with our listeners. And I invite all of our readers to find out more about probiotics and the microbiome in the December 2015 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. 